Welcome back to Out Loud, the Selective Mutism podcast. I'm Chelsea. And I'm Meg. (laughs) My mom is not here this week, so I actually have a special guest, Meg, who, by the roommate gods, blessed me with Meg (laughs) in college. Um, She was a random, randomly assigned roommate, but we ended up being very close friends. Um, And she is now a speech-language pathologist. So I thought it would be cool to have her on and get her insight. So do you want to talk a little about, like, what you do for work? Sure. (laughs) Well, I work uh, full-time at two elementary schools um, in a a city in Mass um, with preschool to sixth graders. And then I also work at a private practice part-time with kiddos from, like, 2 to 13. Mm -hmm. Um, um, this will be my third year as an SLP, and I love what I do. Yeah. Nice. What, um, I guess, like, what kind of diagnoses do you come across? So I work with um, many different populations, mm-hmm. um, autism, speech sound disorders, language disorders. Um, I see a lot of kids who know more than one language or who speak more than one language, mm-hmm. Um apraxia of speech, tap and hard of hearing. Um, And I've actually seen a few kiddos with selective mutism. Yes. Yeah, I was so excited that you actually came across some. So, I mean, I, when I met you, I never like made it very clear that I had selective mutism. It wasn't something I like blabbed about until later on. (laughs) I decided to share that with the world. Um, I thought that was so exciting when you shared that um, and really brave and it. Honestly, it inspired me to share my own health stories online too. Yeah. Thank you. So how did you like become aware of selective mutism? I think I first heard about it actually when we, probably when we were roommates and I had an internship. Yeah. um, At a, at a preschool and there was a girl who had had um I think she had had selective mutism I don't know there was a question of it Mm -hmm. and I remember one of my classmates actually did a project on it and it was talked about as this super rare diagnosis and really interesting and then I came across it when I started um in the school district that I work at wow yeah so it's not like as uncommon as we think it is. I've like most teachers I talk to actually know what it is now. And I find that surprising because when I was growing up, like nobody knew what it was. Um, so it's definitely good that people are starting to learn more about it. Cause a lot of, there's a lot of like myths around it. Like people think that it's <clears throat> intentional or like kids are intentionally not talking and it's some kind of like defiant disorder. Mm-hmm. It's really like rooted in anxiety there's probably a lot of other, like, speech reasons why. <laughs> I don't know the terms of the SLP world, but I'm sure there are. Like, I know there's, like, studies talking about kids who stutter. Um, that also might be part of why they're selectively mute, because they... Uh, oh, because of the anxiety. Yeah. Around the stuttering. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think it should be a collaborative effort between people with psych Mm -hmm. backgrounds and speech can certainly be helpful 
I remember thinking in the schools that the, I wish that the school psychologist was more involved mm -hmm. um, because I feel like it should really be a combination because I don't have that knowledge of anxiety. Yeah. You know my own anxiety, but. <laughs> yeah, definitely. definitely. <laughs> Sorry. I can relate to that. Yeah, I definitely think that it should be collaborative. I mean, there's behavioral approaches as well as, like, a lot of the time behavioral approaches, we ignore things like anxiety and, like, the feelings mm -hmm. of our clients, which is yeah. changing, which is great. And I think all BCBAs should be thinking about anxiety and emotions, mm -hmm. even though we can't observe them. Um, but I don't know. I think we also need to get better at, when I say we, I mean behavior analysts and, like, therapists in general need to get better at working together like with speech I think a lot of the time everyone's on a different page like a kid will have speech services but it, they're like doing something completely different from what the teacher is doing then they're doing something different in therapy and then they're doing something different at home so yep. it doesn't end up being effective yeah I agree it helps when everyone's on the same page and everyone can use their different knowledge and experience to create like the best treatment and plan that we can provide because I know actually I work with um, an ABA therapist with one of my clients every week now and I'm so grateful that I have that mm -hmm. um, extra support. Love to hear that. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the time it's like in schools I've seen well I've only worked in one school but I've seen the paraprofessional or I guess the ABA therapist, if they have that training, they're like, oh, it's time for speech. And they drop them off and go, like, go off and take a break. It's like, well, it would yep. be better if you work together with the speech therapist. So I don't really know a lot about, like, <laughs> I've been to speech <laughs> therapy sessions, a few of them, but mostly with kids with autism. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, what kind of tools you use or, like, what kind, what does, like, a typical session look like? I know that's, like, a crazy question because no, so they're all different. <laughs> yeah, so they can look really different. In schools, it's um, a lot of group work. So I have 60 kids um, that I see every week that are on my caseload in the schools. Um, and it definitely looks different for, like, a preschooler. Um, Who's working on language, so like making sentences, versus a preschooler who's working on saying sounds correctly. Mm -hmm. um, where, and certainly by grade level too. Um, so we use a lot of visuals and cues, positive reinforcement. Oh my gosh, it's been so long with this pandemic that I'm I like, know. what does a typical speech session look like? I know, because now you all you do it on telehealth or whatever yes is that challenging like is it very different I haven't actually done it yeah so with some kids it's pretty I won't say it's easy but they respond really well with it because they love the computer right um, but other kids depending on attention span and interest level it can be a little bit more challenging um, we have the freedom to make whatever plan that we think that we thought our kids needed during like through March through the end of the school year. So that was nice because I could do like 15 minute sessions, mm -hmm. which were perfect for my younger ones. Um, but this year it's going to look different with providing the 
IEP services. Right. Because we can't work on some of those goals anymore. Right. Yeah. It's been interesting. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad definitely. I'm not working in a school right now because it seems like it's very complicated. Yeah. Um, but everyone's doing their best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone I know who works in the school, I think they're amazing right now. I was just going to say, we're all just trying to survive. <laughs> yes. The best that we can. Especially, like, these kids with selective mutism, when it comes to telehealth, like, they are having trouble being on camera. So I can imagine it would be really hard to have a session with someone who doesn't even want to participate, pretty much. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. I'm wondering, like, what therapists are doing to, like, get kids involved who aren't interested or... Right. I feel like for... I know I had one student who refused to get on camera, refused to go on, Mm -hmm. and we actually had him go on, like, a whole class one and just keep his camera off for the first time and just listen, Mm -hmm. and then the next time we you know, said, okay, let's put your camera on, but you don't have to participate. And then actually, like, the last day of school, he was participating and talking, so that was good to see. Sometimes it's just easing them into it, I think. Right, and taking Um, the pressure off. Right, and it it is weird. Like, the first time I would see students in March on the computer, I would, like, make a point to be like, this is weird, right? Yeah. Like, we're in our houses, and I'm, like, we're talking on the computer, um, and most of them would laugh, and then mm-hmm. it kind of became the new normal. But yeah, and I guess it kind of depends on where everyone is in their, we'll say, like journey. Um, but sometimes it's really helpful to do the small groups. Yep. And then to try to schedule that with the pandemic, obviously, could be challenging. But I know kids that I've worked with, they might be fine. Not fine, but they might be comfortable talking with me Mm one-on-one and then it's a matter of getting like a friend in there or someone new to be honest I was very nervous that I was gonna like do something wrong and like because he had made some this is going on off topic but going he had made so much progress and here I was like a first year grad student coming out of school being like, I don't want to do anything wrong. Like, yeah, that's going to make you regress. I feel the same way. <laughs> yes, I always feel like worried that I'm going to do something wrong. <laughs> but that's how we learn, I guess. Yeah, um, it all worked out. Yeah, I'm actually oh, on. Right. I'm on the American Speech, Language, and Hearing Association yes, website, Asha. and it's really great. So, yeah, Asha, is that how you say it? I was yeah. going to definitely share it with this episode. Yeah. It has, so it kinda, good, it'll, it has a full selective mutism page. Ooh, very cool. Yeah. So they list, like, the treatment options that are SLP. Like, they separate behavioral from SLP. So the SLP treatment options are, like, Augmentative and Alternative Communication, which we all know is AAC, um, which for selective mutism, I am not a fan of, but I think if you're going to do it, it should definitely be temporary. (laughs) Yes. Like kind of used as a stepping. Right. And for people who don't know what that is, it's just um, like replacing vocal speech with like aids, like symbols or Mm -hmm. actual devices. Like a lot of people with autism will use 
an iPad and they have different apps where they can form sentences to speak. Yep. But there are, I have used, maybe when I was a kid, an example of that would be like I would put something on my desk, like a piece of paper or something, and that signaled that I had to go to the bathroom. So that is me communicating by putting something on my desk. Um, right. But that didn't stay in place forever. Eventually I had to like vocally ask <laughs> to use the bathroom. <laughs> um, right. And that's with speech, that's like the goal is to provide those, that, those cues and that help. Mm -hmm. but then to eventually build that independence so that there is also they also list augmentative oh my god I can't talk augmented self-modeling have you heard of this it's like we do self-modeling in ABA where to teach skills like we'll have a video of someone like emptying the dishwasher and then we'll show that and they can follow along with the video but this yep. is kind of like the same thought as that because they are but I think it's the child actually watching themselves. Yes. Being successful at some social interaction, which could be difficult. Like you'd have to somehow record them when they're comfortable. Right. I find it very nerve wracking to listen to myself or like yeah. watch videos of myself exactly. that I, I can imagine that would might create some mm -hmm. challenges. Definitely. And a lot of people with selective mutism say that they don't like the sound of their voice and that is part of why they don't like speaking. So just something to think about if you're going to try something right. like that. And then they also list DIR floor time, which I have heard a lot about, but I don't have any experience with. So I've heard of the DIR floor time. Mm -hmm. Have you ever used it or you've just heard of it? Like I've school? just heard of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, to an extent, some of those principles mm -hmm. we use as speech therapists that like we want, we work to have like the total communication approach. So whatever, um, whether it's using signs or gestures or an mm -hmm. AAC device to get them to, to get students to communicate what they need or what they want to tell us. So I feel like that's somewhat similar to what this is saying. Mm -hmm. So ritual sound approach is the next one they list. And I actually... Um, it's part of SCAT, which is, I did a whole episode on that, the social communication anxiety treatment. Um, so, so ritual sound approach is teaching sound production, like in smaller parts, I believe. Okay. So they start with like just small sounds and then they work up to words. So it'd be like saying ha, uh -huh. or ha, hat, like yeah. kind of moving up in, um, in speech, we call it a hierarchy. So we do the same thing with when we work on speech sounds that kids can't say. We start just syllables and then the words, yeah. phrases, sentences, reading, structured yeah. conversation, and unstructured conversation. So, so it kind of seems like it uses that. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because like kids with selective mutism can like make those sounds. <laughs> they can speak those words in other settings but once you put them in like some uncomfortable environment all of a sudden they feel like they can't make a single sound so i think starting with these smaller sounds would be easier than like prompting them to say a whole word so it makes sense to me that you would start like smaller yeah. and work up to a full word i agree with that and brings them some success yeah 
could lead to some good confidence to get yeah. to those words and stuff. It also says they use like an alphabet board. I don't know if you've ever done this and the kid crosses off like which sounds they can produce. So it's kind of like self monitoring and mm -hmm. probably a little reinforcing. Like I can do all of this and you can see your yeah. own progress. That's something huge I've been trying to work on with my older kids is that they they know why they come to speech and mm -hmm. they know it's not just to play games. Yeah. <laughs> and that we're working on whatever it is and that this is how they're doing and they take so much pride in that, which I really have enjoyed yeah. seeing. That's awesome. I think that's a big part of probably everything, but selecting mutism, I'm always thinking like these kids need to be like involved in their own treatment and have some kind of say over like what their goals are and mm -hmm. they need to have that like internal motivation. I agree. Right. What do they want to work on to be successful or like what does success look to look like to that student? You know what I mean? Yeah. It can look so different for everyone. Like, pragmatic approach? I feel like this is kind of what was written in the goals that I so the goals for my student were already written, mm -hmm. and this is what, how the goals were written. Right. This is like a shaping procedure, it sounds like. Yeah. What we would call it an ABA. So you're shaping, it can start with nonverbal um, mm -hmm. social engagement, move to verbal, but you're reinforcing, like, moving up that hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah, so it's and kind of like um, systematic desensitization, kind of. Yeah, and like talking with someone you already know versus someone mm -hmm. new, volume of voice. So oh, yeah, yeah. Go from whispering to a regular volume, <laughs> which people you use each yeah. volume with. Right, in different environments, like mm -hmm. certain classes might be harder than others. So gradually working up to that. And with certain teachers. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. You need teachers on board or it's like a major roadblock <laughs> definitely like what happens when you're like referred to case like what is like the whole like assessment and stuff look like so it'll it'll look kind of different based off what setting you're in but I'll just do you want me to just talk about schools yeah okay so in the schools um it can be that a teacher noticed that a kid was having a hard time a parent noticed they were struggling with language or speech sounds. A lot of the times referrals and will just come from speech sounds because that can be the most noticeable. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, they're not saying um, red, right. They're saying wed. Oh, okay. some language difficulties can be a little bit more. Yeah, you know, like harder to catch. Or... Right. Um, harder to catch because, especially for kids who are bilingual. Um, and so in the schools, we do standardized assessments. A lot of times I do in, informal speech and language samples. So I just write down everything they're saying okay. and analyze that. Observing them in the classroom, mm -hmm. looking at some of their work in the classroom because their language difficulties can show in their writing. So to look at okay. their written work is also important. That's interesting. Do, are they you? I can't talk either. Are they usually similar? Like, if they're making a mistake in their writing, is that also reflected, like in their speech? Yeah. So, if with language, if they 
have trouble with vocabulary or making sentences, they're going to write down the sentence that they would say out loud. Mm -hmm. So uh, like irregular past tense verbs, like if they say she go to the mall, uh -huh. they'll write that down as well. Sometimes you do see that with um, speech disorders that they'll write or read the same way that they pronounce the word. So like wow. they would write W instead of R. That makes sense. I don't know why I've never thought of that. Yeah, I think it's more, it was a big like emphasis on it when I was in grad school. And I think it's becoming more and more common to address. That's interesting. I'm curious because when I was little, I like I've read assessments about myself that are funny because uh, my English was great. Like I can speak like language. <laughs> now I can't, but <laughs> I used to speak grammatically correct. Um, as like a small child, like age appropriate sentences and like everything was great. But then I would kind of revert almost like I would intentionally use improper language, like which we called like baby talk. It was like part of anxiety, like how I would downplay myself or something so that people didn't take me as seriously. But I'm just okay. curious. I wonder if people looked at that as like, oh, she has issues with language or it was like, I don't know, if it was noticed that it's different in different settings. Like, do you, I guess you probably observe kids in different settings. So you would notice something like that. Yeah, they might in the classroom use different language than how they talk with their friends at recess or even at home. And I think it's a common, I could be wrong, but a misconception that children with selective mutism don't know language, so to speak, or like that that's the problem mm -hmm. when really like your language is great. It's just that anxiety piece. Yeah. If I'm wrong about anything, please just correct oh, me. Oh, you're right. This I is think... the for me too. <laughs> and that's a, I think that's a big problem because a lot of people act like you don't have any thoughts or you're not hearing. Like they just assume that if you're not speaking that there's nothing going on there or right. you're, I don't know. It's like you can't hear either. <laughs> it's like I can hear everything you're saying about me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's just... In different settings, you get different responses from a kid with, like, intense anxiety. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Do you think, like, in the speech world, like, people, a lot of people know about selective mutism, or is it kind of like you just happen to come across it? I think it's becoming more and more well-known um, well within the mm -hmm. speech world. I think it's pretty commonly talked about, and I think a lot of, at least, conversations I've had with others is that interprofessional collaboration that yeah professionals just need to like really need to work together because right. we all have such great knowledge in our own fields that just need to be put together mm -hmm. to really help clients students so i've seen that i've seen slps take data before which is very exciting to me <laughs> yes <laughs> do you also take data yes i have to <laughs> does everyone <laughs> have to take data so we're i I don't want to call out any SLPs, so any SLPs listening, sorry. But <laughs> we're supposed to because that's what drives our instruction. That's what drives what we're going to work on the next time. Mm -hmm. And you can get like a rough estimate in your head, but how reliable is that? Yeah. Um, so I am very religious with taking data. That's amazing. <laughs> um, sometimes 
it can be difficult when kids notice that you're taking data. Yeah. They're like aware of it and they'll be like, yeah. what are you writing? Like, cause you yeah. don't want them yeah. to, I don't want my kids to become like hyper aware that they're being marked for everything. Yeah. But it is important to see progress or even regression, especially right now with the pandemic. It'll yeah. be so important to take the data when I get back to see how they were yeah. in March versus now. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I know. I think regression, I keep saying it's sad, but I think it's going to happen. And I agree. All we can do is be prepared for that. Like, it's no one's fault. It's just what happened. Right. Because of this COVID-19 thing. Yeah. There's just so many new normals right now. Yeah. And not that we want regression or that it's normal, but everything was changed so quickly around us. Mm -hmm. And for kids, that's even more difficult. Yeah. And kids are pretty resilient. Like, I see them bounce back and I see data Mm -hmm. go back to normal after a while. So I have faith that that will happen. Um, Yep. (laughs) And once things go back. What does, like, data for a BCBA look like? So, like, when I take data, a lot of times I just do pluses or minuses Uh if they do the same thing, right? Yeah. It really depends on, like, what your goals are. I mean, if you're doing like a bigger task it's you're breaking it down into each step and you're marking it like like you said a plus or a minus for like each step so you can see like where the issues are like what part of the task analysis is needing help um but we also we take a lot of like frequency data like when it comes to behavior it's like the frequency and the duration of things um okay yeah i think it definitely it has to depend on what the goals are for selective mutism the goals would be like speaking to new people or like asking questions um like asking right. so that, things. the plus or minus system <laughs> yeah. probably wouldn't be as is not as beneficial because you want to see you know what's being communicated who mm-hmm. it's being communicated with and right. how and not just and what kinds did of they say a sound yeah right, right. or wrong I've also taken speech data because I work with people with autism who also usually get speech speech services and we usually have like like a data sheet that has they want to know like exactly what they said so we literally write out what they said or what they typed in on their device then Mm -hmm. you like record like whether they were able to do each step independently or they needed a prompt um, yep. you know, things like that I'm familiar with trying to think like with selective mutism a lot of the time what I've seen them they use like sticker charts which aren't it's more like a self-monitoring thing like the kid gets to put their own sticker on there or like a smiley face or whatever they want it, they're like tokens so every time they like they communicate with someone yeah. or vocalize yeah anytime yeah. they say something or maybe even just like if they have nonverbal goals, it depends on their goals. So if their goal is like waving to their teacher in the morning, they're putting like a sticker on there, which is right. data, but it's like the kid is taking their own data. And then they're also tokens, which are going to give them some kind of reward. And I feel like it's a tough balance with, and I've felt this before with students with autism of you want to you want to reinforce and say like, good job, or like, you know, use those visuals, like sticker charts Mm -hmm. to support them. But also with communication, it's like the 
the positive reinforcement is that you're communicating with someone mm-hmm. having a conversation. Right. And getting your needs met. From right. From. So yeah. it's like finding that balance that they're not going to say something to get the sticker chart, but also know that like take pride in that they're doing it. Mm-hmm. So I feel like maybe that's a transition thing. And at first you might see charts and stuff mm-hmm. and then eventually work to kind of take it away. Yeah. And I I know like older kids like come up with their own goals and that becomes like uh, they don't really need stickers or anything. They just mm-hmm. are proud of themselves for being able to do things that they're motivated to do. Do you write goals on. like? Yep. Or you, you do? Yeah. So we write. Do you guys use that like the SMART acronym with min like with verbal cues? Student will wave to teacher every morning in 90% of opportunities or something like that. Oh, I found it specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, time-based. Yes. I have heard of that. I just don't know acronyms. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's how we write. We'll do long-term goals and then short-term. I don't know what else. There was other stuff I wanted to say, but I don't know. I guess I always have people like, not sometimes they ask me, but sometimes... I just see them on Facebook groups. They're like, who do I go to for therapy for my like kid with selective mutism? They're like, should I go to a speech therapist? It's like, well, you should be going to multiple people and they should all be working together. I agree. And I feel like, or would you agree that, a, you know, seeing a psychologist would be the mm-hmm. first step yeah. to take? Okay. Cause that's, that's what I, I well, they're the ones who can diagnose, so that would definitely be <laughs> the best thing. Because I'm assuming yeah. to get speech therapists, like speech therapy, you need some kind of diagnosis. Is that yep. right? Like it has to be formalized right. and everything. And we can diagnose speech and language disorders. Mm-hmm. I don't think we can diagnose selective mutism. Right. I would want that other professional opinion and yeah. collaboration to make any major decisions. Mm-hmm. I don't know. To me, I always felt like this was like before I had any <laughs> actual contact with speech. And I always thought like, why would a kid with selective mutism need a speech therapist? Like they can talk fine. What would you say to that? I feel like I keep going back to like the same thing of we all have different background knowledge mm-hmm. in communication or um, anxiety, depending your specialty, we all have such specific knowledge that I think it can be helpful Mm -hmm. because we know about the social aspects of language and communication, but I would never want to see someone with selective mutism just seeing a speech therapist. Right. I just, part of it is like not understanding what speech is like a speech therapist does like they're not just teaching kids to talk they're like setting goals they're doing a lot of what behavior analysts do which is like setting goals taking data like yep making accommodations for those kids Um, right we do so much that I feel like probably with a lot of other professions people don't know about and all (laughs) the different things that we can treat and work with yeah and kind of what drives drives that treatment mm-hmm. whether it be speech sounds language stuttering executive functioning we even can work with yeah. and we work across the lifespan so it can be mm-hmm. baby to end of life um, swallowing disorders yeah 
I'm forgetting big ones. Social language, AAC. I think we can be helpful, but I think it needs to be a team approach. Right. My main thought was a collaborative approach. It's interesting though, because the speech therapist has like an interesting role. Usually they have them in schools, which not all schools have therapists in the school. I mean, a lot of kids don't have services in the school, but if they have a speech therapist, that's kind of like someone who can work with teachers. A lot of the time, I feel like teachers need more information and they don't know a lot about it. And like hearing from like a therapist would be helpful. I just think they have like a unique position. I mean, I've seen schools where there's no school psychologist or they're not involved or the caseload's like too big so they can't focus like a speech therapist can on one child. Mm -hmm. So that's another helpful part that we can support is being educators Mm -hmm. for other people. Yeah. That they understand and know, you know, how to help and what's not going to help. Do you Um, like, how do you get teachers on board like do you like have them into sessions or do you do sessions in the classroom sometimes so yeah so in schools we can take them out of the classroom and work in the speech room (laughs) with the students or go into the classroom we call it push-in and or inclusion and I find that that's really helpful because you can support them or even see, okay, they can do this in the speech room, but to do it in the classroom is mm-hmm. really challenging. So I'm going to give them this tool to help them. Yeah. Or educating the teacher with honestly sending along that, that ASHA website or making yeah. a list of things of like, do this and don't do this. Yeah. And also in schools, it's called the A grid and that it's just consultation. So that could also be a part that you consult with the classroom teacher or the school psychologist to make sure that the accommodations are being put in place. Oh, nice. One thing I've thought about is, or wondered, I guess, is, I don't know if you ever ran into this, but so in schools now, there's so many standardized tests that you have to like talk into a microphone or something. What, like as a, as a, person with selective mutism that must be challenging yeah like that's part of the test yeah that they have to like narrate something oh wow yeah I definitely think that would be hard I mean there's probably like accommodations like I remember I had to record myself for something in school one time and I could do it if no one else was in the room and I felt like I knew who was going to be listening to the recording so Mm -hmm. I think Maybe if they had, like, a room to do it separately, it could be possible, but that's hard. Even with other, some of my other students who have autism, that's really hard Mm -hmm. for them to do. The same thing with, like, reading out loud, like, assessing their reading skills through their ability to read out loud. Right, because then it's reflected that, like, for for some kids, you can't really use that as a true yeah. measurement because that's a reflection of, you know, whether their anxiety level yeah. or other diagnoses. But they might be reading just fine and understanding everything. Mm-hmm. You know? And reading out loud is so much harder than reading in your head. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why we do that. 
That's something that's always interested me, bugged me. I think for some of my kids who might say it sound wrong, if they're saying wed, but they know that that's the color red, they're not reading it wrong. Mm -hmm. That's just how they say it. So they're understanding it's the color red. Right. So I feel like they shouldn't be marked for that because Mm -hmm. that's something they need to work on with me, but... I couldn't even be assessed for that when I was in school. They were like, well, she won't do it, so we can't. I was, okay. Yeah. What are some of the things that when you were little that you really appreciated people doing and then stuff that irked you to no end? Yeah, I guess stuff that I appreciated was like people giving me time and not like judging me for not being able to respond or just really like not commenting on it and giving me my space and Mm -hmm. trying to arrange the environment to make me more comfortable. Like I had teachers who would split us up into smaller groups or like pair me with kids that I'm comfortable with. Um, Things like that make a huge difference. And then Mm -hmm. things that really bother me are obviously like people that make a big deal out of it or comment on it or act like you're doing it on purpose. Like a lot of I won't say a lot of, but some kids, a lot of kids have a hard time understanding. And then sometimes you feel like the teacher is like annoyed with you because you're purposely not participating in the class or whatever, which just makes you feel bad about yourself. And it makes you feel like you're not going to be able to do it in the future. So Mm -hmm. you need like that supportive environment of people who are going to let you move at your own pace, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I'd be interested, though, in seeing, like, the research in the different treatment paths and what's mm-hmm. what's more effective mm-hmm. or beneficial or helpful yeah. um, short-term and long-term. Yeah. There's so, not a lot about long-term. <laughs> yeah. I'd be interested in researching that to see so then I can make appropriate rep- recommendations if I see a student with selective mutism knowing you know, okay, this, if I support them this way, it's going to be really helpful, but Mm -hmm. research shows that this is not going to work. Right. Which is all part of evidence-based practice, which drives what we do. Right. Um, So I guess it's just taking the time to educate ourselves even more, Mm -hmm. ourselves meeting SLPs, making sure that we are aware of things. So like if you were given a referral, like I guess this did happen, of a kid with selective mutism, you wouldn't see that as like out of your scope of practice because you've never worked with selective mutism before. Would you, I guess that's when like collaboration comes into it. I don't know. Like how would you approach it? I would definitely talk with other SLPs Mm -hmm. if they've worked with kids with selective mutism, but then also referring out and not being afraid to say like, Hey, I, you know, have knowledge of this, but not sufficient knowledge that I feel that I can help by myself, you know, let's get a referral to school psychologists or um, someone else who might be helpful so that I learn and so that they receive what they need to. Yeah. It's like kind of getting over, I don't know if you call it pride, but like saying, it's okay to say like, I don't know. Yeah. Like, it's that's better than pretending you know and mm-hmm. then that can have such negative effects yeah definitely on I so think, many people 
I always think about scope of practice because in this job, normally I just work with kids with autism and that is it. But this new job that I have, I'm like seeing all kinds of like psych diagnoses that I've never worked with. I'm seeing like hoarding, I'm seeing bipolar, schizophrenia, like there's all, it's all behavior, which I understand, but it's like certain things you don't understand the psychology behind. You need to Mm -hmm. do the research or collaborate with other people and not be afraid to call in people who are actually experts in those diagnoses. (laughs) And I think selective mutism is hugely like that because not many people know about it. So I think for a lot of harm could be done if you do not know what you're doing looked at <laughs> people yeah. need to work together yes that well, is the takeaway yes <laughs> and an, SL, an slp scope of practice is so wide yeah that sometimes it's hard to to draw those lines so to speak yeah but it's all about kind of advocating for yourself and then you're advocating for your client as well to say yeah no, they need better than what I can provide. Right. Because if you're not seeing progress, something needs to change. I think that's what happens with selective mutism. There's people who haven't made progress for years and years and years. And it's like, why is it? I don't know. Maybe you're doing the wrong kind of therapy or you have the wrong therapist, which there's anything wrong with the therapist. It just means there's a better fit out there. Or like, if you're not seeing progress, you need to change. Because right. there are studies where people get the correct ther- um, therapy and they're, they make progress like within a few sessions. Like that's how wow. you know that it's working. Right. Um, right. Not seeing progress doesn't always mean you should terminate mm-hmm. treatment. It just means you need something different, whether yeah. it be a different approach or a different therapist yep. or specialty. I was going to say like there's a lot of like comorbidities too that I wanted to talk about but I don't really like a lot I've seen a lot of people with autism also have selective mutism diagnoses which is interesting people with autism are nonverbal in certain situations which pretty much is the definition of selective mutism but I think it could have different reasons right to decipher yeah kind of distinguish okay is this a language disorder or is this you know the anxiety the psychology piece Mm -hmm. of it or the motivation piece yeah you know are they motivated to to socialize correct me if i'm wrong but maybe that's a big difference between what you might see in autism versus selective Mm -hmm. mutism yeah you have that motivation but it with kids with autism they don't always have that social motivation yeah there's also like like sensory overload like they could just kind of shut down, which can also happen with selective mutism. That's another thing. A lot of kids have sensory processing disorder who have selective mutism. But I think, yeah, it's probably different for every kid. But a lot of kids with um, with autism have anxiety. And I think that is like a root of a lot of the behaviors that you see in autism. Definitely. Also, when kids are getting diagnosed, one can easily be mistaken for another. If someone has, if an individual has selective mutism, Mm -hmm. uh, someone diagnosing who's not looking close enough might see symptoms of autism. Yeah, I think the big difference is the situational aspect. Like, if a kid is not talking at school, then it's, but they're talking everywhere else, and they're Mm -hmm. more comfortable, 
then it's probably selective mutism. But that doesn't mean you can't have both because you can also be autistic and have certain situations where you feel more comfortable speaking in. But I think they do get mixed up because people see someone who's who just looks nonverbal so and has sensory issues maybe and they jump to autism. Mm-hmm. It's so weird that they can kids can end up in speech but not have anything else like evaluated. <laughs> I don't know. It's like why mm-hmm. aren't we looking at their the whole picture? Professionals we should advocate for that and then as humans and moms, dads, yeah. students, whatever, we should advocate for that that everything yes. is being looked at. Yeah. Pretty much all I have. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thank you for coming on. I think after this conversation, I definitely feel like I want to go online and just like research and learn more about yeah. it and the different treatment options and what other professionals would do. Yeah. What their treatment would look like, things like that. Mm-hmm. I'm actually trying to get involved in that. I was kind of close at the beginning um before covid hit and Mm -hmm. i i was talking with um people at boston child study center and i was like signing up for trainings and stuff and then this happened and everything got canceled um oh man but i did get the volunteer at one like day camp thing but i would like to go this route if that if it's possible that would be amazing (laughs) oh my god that's awesome it's weird because I think as like behavior analysts have the skill set for it, but they don't so much of the time we look at behaviors as like, oh, how do we change it instead of like, oh, they're terrified. We need to yeah. like, gradually ease them into it. I don't know. We ignore psychology and emotions. Right. Which is a problem. Yeah, definitely. I don't know. A lot of, like, ABA stuff, I, like, look at it and I'm like, I wouldn't want this happening to me as a child. Like, the way that it, I don't know. It's like, I don't know. I think I have a different perspective of it. Because when I'm doing therapy, I'm like, oh, how would I want to be treated in therapy? Yes. I don't know. Definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you so uh, much for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks for having your, me. Sharing your wisdom. <laughs> Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Out Loud, the Selective Mutism podcast. Please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. If you want more information on speech and language pathology, go to asha.org, A-S-H-A dot org, and you can search Selective Mutism to see the treatments that we talked about. Thanks, bye!